Welcome, folks, to this week's episode of If I Only Knew, where Fred and I are going to discuss a really interesting topic in youth and work. What do the young people and millennials think about being in the workforce? Fred's got a lot of experience in this. You've done like work in this area, haven't you, Fred? Yeah, absolutely. We are an employer. Matt and I both work for the same organisation, of which I'm a director, and there's about 450 of us in the, the group now. But with that said, over the last... Well, over my professional career, I started as a recruiter um, and I would say it'd be safe to say, Matt, I don't think you'll meet someone that's interviewed and employed as many people indirectly and directly as I have. Yeah. I, I think it would be in the order of hundreds of thousands over about a 25-year career. God, I'm really interested to hear what you have to think about like this new generation of workers because obviously I'm one of those new generation of workers and I think that there's some unique opportunities but also some real challenges. And in the discussion, there's like, a common discussion point, right? In this discussion, I often feel like things sometimes get positioned as benefits when they might actually be challenges that millennials face. The thing that comes to my mind first is this idea of how the workforce is adaptable now when you get to change jobs and you get to pick different opportunities and do different things. I think that's an excellent opportunity for a lot of people. But I also think for some people that's terrifying. And it means you can't comfortably pick up one trade or one skill and get super good at it and keep going on with it for the rest of your life if that's what you want to do. Um, and that sort of instability, I suppose, the, there's an opportunity to move between work, but there's also a might be a necessity to move between work. And I think that's something that I um, often think about when this discussion comes up. So that's a bit scary for you. Yeah, well, I think for me personally, I find it as more of an opportunity than a fear because I think I'm yeah. really well positioned. I'm very lucky to be able to take advantage of that opportunity. But I know in a lot of my peers, and I see it in a lot of young people in general, this lack of faith in the employment system to provide them with the stability and a decent standard of living and that sort of thing um, as those opportunities pass them by, I guess. Because for an opportunity to be valuable, you've got to be able to take it. And I worry that not every young person is able to take this opportunity of flexibility. That's interesting that you say that, actually. One of the things that I think it was a podcast from a couple of weeks, and thank everybody for their support of If I Only Knew. We're getting tons of likes and listens That's and amazing. some really, really great feedback. Um, you know, the reality is it's interesting for me in so far as a couple of weeks ago we were talking about economic stuff and you talked about owning your own home and you said something along the lines of, look, maybe in my mid-30s. And I, I remember clocking that because for me it was, and it may be, I will say there's a few factors that are a bit different. One, I came from a, a migrant uh, background, so parents that had immigrated and particularly my dad whose value was work hard and buy property. Um, and I remember thinking that if I was in my early 20s and I didn't have something at least, I, I had failed, I'd missed the boat. And work became a really, really big focus. So, um, and work ethic was something that was drummed into me quite literally. Uh, and my family, one of the benefits of my, my upbringing was work ethic was a big part of our life. We had a family business and literally my brothers can tell you that they were there from their early childhood, as was I. I remember my dad at the age of five saying, would you like to come to work with me? He didn't tell me that. It'd be every Thursday night and Saturday until I turned about 17 and quit. But I, I want to ask him a couple of questions about your generation. From your perspective, uh, and I've got my own view on this, but there's a lot said about the millennials who statistically are the largest part of the Australian workforce at the moment. 
particularly 25 to 35, which sort of borders on the other generations, but particularly Gen Z or the millennials are, are right in the heart of that. Do you think this concept of work or work-life balance or work ethic has changed for your generation or do you see it as something that's carried on from the lessons you learned from parents and grandparents and those sorts of things? Yeah. Because a lot said about the fact that you guys aren't as resilient as those that came before and I'm not sure that I agree with that. I am biased and I'm inclined to think that young people are not lazy or unmotivated or lack work ethic. Um, I think some of them are because, of course, some of them do. Some people have always lacked that sort of thing. But I know plenty of extremely motivated young people. I think the problem for me isn't so much a lack of work ethic, but it's more a lack of a obvious need to get to work every day and put in your eight hours and go home. Because I think that a lot of today's young people are super lucky to have avoided some of the the really basic threats that older generations might have had to face. Like, my dad and mum both grew up with at least the possibility of not having three hearty meals every day sort of thing. They grew up in rural Australia, whatever. You know, it never really happened. They were farmers through and through. They made it work, whatever. But, like, that sort of poverty was something quite close to my family's experience in the past, whereas my experience has been fundamentally different to that because I think there's access to more opportunity now to, to have a basic standard of living with access to technology and that sort of thing. Now, of course, there are young people that um, have all these really challenging experiences, and I think it's a great thing that a lot of young people don't have to experience that. But I wonder if it puts less of a fire under some young people to get them to go out and work nine to five every day when they can live half-decent life without that same pressure, without that experience of if I don't do that, then I will be at a imminent threat sort of thing to my well-being and my existence. I mean, look, there's definitely this generation, the millennials and the generation that comes touch wood, up until the point of the pandemic, had not known the sort of deprivation that the generation before mine had. That's certainly so what I feel been, like, yeah. yeah. There's been no global conflict. There's been no... There was the global financial crisis, but it feels like a, a snotty nose compared to the stories about the Great Depression. So there's a whole heap of, of differences. So I think that we are both beneficiaries of a much better economy globally, yeah. a far less deep downturn, although I think the pandemic has definitely demonstrated to us that nothing could be taken for granted. I, I will say this. I don't think this idea of people having to work has changed. I don't think that there are young people right now that don't go to work and grind eight, eight hours because they've got it any better than previous generations. Mm. Um, and I don't think the young people that go to work, all the young people that go to work and do an eight-hour day do it specifically because they're keeping the family off the breadline. I think there's a thing called disposable income. I think people like to earn. Yeah. The more you earn, the more you buy, the more you party, the more you're out and about. I, I think specifically for me, the, the difference that I see between the discussions I've had with you and my own experience is um, I believe that the young people entering the workforce now, which I've had the privilege of working with very many, don't necessarily buy into the I'm going to be certain on day one. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like early career is experimental. 
I don't think that was different for me, but I think you learnt to lie to yourself or to lie to people and say, no, this is my vocation. Right, yeah. So the first time I got a job, they said, do you want to do this? I said, absolutely. I've researched it. I've hunted it down. This is what I want to do. And that was a complete lie. I'd gone for six or seven different sorts of jobs. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Yeah. And I was there. For the, probably the difference was when times got tough, instead of being vulnerable and having uh, an honest conversation, I sucked it up. And that's not about being more robust or resilient. It was more about the idea of that traditional voice in my head saying, you've got a job, some of your friends don't. Grin and bear it. And there was benefits to that because sometimes short-term pain dissipated and the jobs were good. But I must admit, they talk about millennials changing their careers. Maybe I was ahead of my time. But I think in my first 10 years of work, I had five jobs, all good jobs, all jobs that progressed my career and advanced my salary. But I was out there hunting to get to a point which I don't think is inconsistent with millennials now, except people want to say that they're snowflakes that can't stand up to the heat of a job. And I do see some of that, but I see it in a different way. I see there's more authenticity and someone's prepared to say, I've had some tough days. I've looked at what I want out of work and life, and these tough days don't fit. And one of the, the, the research that book the references on the podcast talks a lot about work-life balance. But there's something you said earlier that's fascinating for me, and that's this concept of job security. The research also says job security is really important to millennials. Why do you think job security is in jeopardy for you guys? It's more good work than there ever has been, and you guys have got access to jobs that didn't exist when I was your age, this digital economy and stuff. Talk to me a bit about job security. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really interesting to have you reflect on your experience moving around jobs and finding the job that fit you because like that's not how I imagine work was 30, 40 years ago. I just don't imagine it like that. So I think it's useful to remember that, you know, we have all this discourse around this sort of stuff, but just how much it's changed you know some people move around some don't some people are super skilled some aren't some people are super driven some aren't that seems to be sort of a constant factor in all this sort of stuff i think the the thing with job security for me is that it doesn't feel like there are plenty of jobs in australia right now or if it does feel that way it feels as if we are competing with many more people for those jobs that's the, the other thing it feels like so, so for one thing, there's a discussion, I think, among young people about the availability of jobs. The second point is the required skills to get those jobs that I think can intimidate some young people. There's less sense, in my mind at least, of the access to medium to low-skilled jobs. And I think that's supported through a lot of research and the role of automation and stuff that people will be yeah. quite familiar with. And so I think that with a lack of low and medium skilled jobs, it puts the onus on the individual to upskill themselves and to get themselves in a position to take advantage of perhaps more high-level jobs. If there are more high-level jobs, which it might not feel like, if there are, then even to access those is itself a challenge, a process. And that process is costly, it's difficult, it's also a risk, I think, because if you invest in upskilling yourself and that sort of thing and it doesn't pay off, then you've suddenly failed in that risk. And so I think that mm. this lack of sort of entry steps or, or something about middle a lack of middle and low skill jobs makes it seem more intimidating to join the job market and stay in it because 
the jobs that might be available are probably slightly more risky or difficult to acquire in some ways, even if they are out there. It's interesting you say that. When you talk about highly skilled, are you talking about things like university degrees and I think I am talking about that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And there's it seems that there's less of an opportunity. And we've spoken a little bit, Fred, in, in this podcast about people who have like plenty of opportunities in society and people who have very few and the fact that society has to cater to both of those sorts of people. Yeah. And so I think our modern economy seems to be moving towards opportunities that cater to those who have plenty of opportunities and moving away from the people that don't have as many opportunities in catering to those people in the job market, at least, is the way that I interpret the role of automation and that sort of thing. And so I think that the lack of opportunity or positions for young people who don't see themselves as the go-getter, who don't see themselves as the star of the class, who don't see themselves as like someone who's really capable and competent, they might not want to go to uni, but they also might not want to get a super like skilled trade or whatever. It's less about the university side of things, I think, and more about the... um, effort and investment and risk you have to put into yourself as like human capital if you like to participate in the modern economy compared to what i imagine you had to do to participate in the past there's something to be said about demanding like self-reflection and self-accountability and developing your own human capital that's a really valuable trait but i do wonder if there's a limit to which we can expect every person on a spectrum across society to step up to the plate of personal accountability and skills development and that sort of stuff. I know you're all about accountability, Fred, so I'm curious as your thoughts on that as an idea. Well, no, I, I think you're right. I um, It's the reason I don't use self-service checkouts in the supermarket because oh, yeah. I think that's a scam. Oh. Um, I think it should be young people with big smiles on their faces. I was a supermarket trainer for six months training people to serve on cash registers. It was the worst job of my life. I won't say who I worked for, but if I die and go to hell, it's that job again. Um, but it's interesting. I reflect on my father's journey as a migrant. He came to Australia when he's in his late teens. I think he was 18 by the time he got here, 17, 18. And when he got here, I think there was a policy that was about uh, bringing people in. Otherwise, the Australian yeah. economy was in real trouble, which is where you got a big influx after World War II of migrants, right. yeah. particularly from Italy and other places. So when he got here, they said, would you like to try being a railway mechanic? And he started an apprenticeship, literally walked in on right, day one, right. didn't speak the, the, the language. He didn't enjoy it. So they said, well, you've got two options. You go back or you work. So he heard about cutting sugarcane. And over the next eight years, would do the sugarcane season and make enough money to basically set himself up for the rest of his life. It was right. really hard work. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't have to have special skills except a strong back and a strong arm, and, and lots of migrants did that work. Uh, and my dad still speaks of it now as probably some of the best work of his life. Right, right. Um, and then he did fruit picking, and then he worked on a on, on a grain uh, outside of Goulburn where they grew wheat at the time. And then when that didn't work, he came back into the city and he worked in fruit shops, which he eventually yeah. bought from his boss. You know, if you if you walked past somebody and asked for work back then, you know, it was Bricky's labourer for a dollar a brick or ten pound or eight pound or nine pound a week. It was good wages, cash in the hand, working really hard. And this was a generation where people were walking into universities and saying, uh, lawyer, I think I'll do that. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. If you were from the right school the right way and I think the university was virtually free back then, that stuff has all evaporated. Yeah. 
I do think that that middle of the road soul that just wants to work hard has got far fewer opportunities now for your generation because manufacturing has largely left the country. Mm. Whether you believe that's a good thing or not, I don't know. But And retail is getting bigger but smaller. Mm. Digital disruption saying we don't need as many people smiling. Um, I do think there's always good jobs for people that are prepared to swing a pick or an axe or a shovel or a stop go sign, but I, I understand what you mean. We've, we've sort of automated ourselves out of very labor intensive, reasonable jobs. No one wants to do a bad job, right? No yeah. one wants to do a shit job. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's an important point as well, Fred, because someone listening to this might say, Oh, they could go pick the fruit during summer or whatever. And yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I was interested enough to give that a bit of a research myself, but just a lot of the opportunities just aren't really appealing enough to justify going out there, you know, and I'm probably in a lucky enough position that I can pick and choose if I want to do that sort of thing. Um, and the argument might be that if you can't, then you just have to go do it. But I also think that we should interrogate whether that's how we actually want our economy to run. Do we really want people yeah. to have to take up shithouse jobs because that are challenging, like doing sugarcane topping or whatever, but also don't provide the remuneration of like the money that you can support yourself off of and they don't provide accommodation or, or whatever it is. Like I think that's yeah, an interesting I, I think, challenge. I think the, the the point I'd make is back in the day, and again I reflect on my father's experience, hard work got remunerated well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I don't think any work is shit work. I'll say that up front. But I think if you are if you're picking fruit, which is a great job if you're inclined to do it, but it's hard work, then the money should be commensurate yeah. with the guy that sits and answers the phone in a call center who probably has the benefit of, you know, a nine to five easy commute. Mm. So I think that we could incentivize harder jobs. And the biggest one that I'm always fascinated by is commercial cleaning. It is the lowest paid and they say the yeah. least skilled role. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's a fiction because yeah. good cleaners are worth their weight in gold. And, you know, why wouldn't you say, hey, you know, I, I run my own cleaning contract the business and I can earn a, life, a livelihood doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's no shame in that. There's entrepreneurship. There's a pride in employment. During the pandemic, we learned how important cleaners were because they've got chemicals that kill diseases. And all of a sudden, every office the cleaner was your best friend because he was the one keeping the business going. Deep yeah. cleaning of schools. Uh, probably one of the coolest jobs I've ever heard of, Matt, is disaster cleaning. The people are going after there's fire or flood or they find a dead body. Right. And uh, that is the coolest job ever if you've got the stomach for it. Yeah. But would you clean up, you know, a dead body for the most minimum of wages. Yeah, exactly, you know? exactly, exactly. That what you want to do? Yeah. I think they should be paid more than me. <laughs> if they yeah. have had to clean up my big carcass, I mean, shit, they'd have to have danger money. Yeah. I, I guess the point you're making, though, is what I'm hearing you say is the sorts of roles that would give you the lifestyle that you want are competitive, and the sorts of roles that might be available readily aren't necessarily made attractive because yeah. of conditions and pay and stuff. That's exactly right. I think that's why ideas of like work-life balance and stability and that sort of stuff are such a priority for young people is because the jobs that you just fall into if you don't have a choice don't provide that. And so we're, that people are looking for something more 
than just what they get given if they, they have to take it. And, and that's always been the case. You've always been able to get more educated and do harder jobs to earn a bit more spending cash or whatever. But I think it's the difference between a bit more spending cash and a minimally comfortable modern life in some sense. Now, maybe that's not the goal. I don't know. What do you think of this this gig economy like Airtasker yeah. and the Ubers? If you look at it, it's slave labour. It's, it's People are working for far less than the minimum wage. Yeah. Um, no barriers to entry. You know, If you've got a push bike and a backpack, you can go and be a delivery driver for a food company that's gouging the restaurant 30%, the customer 10%, yeah. paying you 2%. What do you think of that sort of gig economy aspect of work and taking the stability out of work? Yeah, so it's exactly what it does, first and foremost, right? It takes just, that's a really leading question. I just show, I just told you why I thought it was shit and then said, do you think it's shit too? <laughs> My listeners will pick us up on that, mate. They, they're all over me. Anyway, you were saying, yeah, mate, so gigification, gig economy. <laughs> I think the first thing it does is it ruins security and yeah. long-term um, Investment in a job, right? And that's no surprise. It's, it doesn't provide any any kind of benefits of leave or, or whatever, which are really important when people have problems. And I think that's that's pretty familiar with how if you can just pick up your phone and make 10 bucks in an hour, you know, it's not really a secure job, but it makes you a little bit of money. I think it, the fact that these things have become so popular, Fred, kind of speaks to me about the way they might have replaced other low to medium skilled jobs and taken that position in the economy for workers is people who are vulnerable, people who don't have another choice, people who just need to make a bit of money, pick up these jobs because they can, because they need to. And it's great that money exists. You know, the capitalist stands out and says, this is an excellent opportunity for the self-driven man to work 15 hours and get their start their way in the world. And that is, does provide an opportunity. But I think it's telling that people doing these jobs might have done other more secure better paying perhaps jobs in the past, but they don't exist anymore. And so the gig economy has identified a pool of labor that it can draw upon through technology to provide a very cheap service to consumers by paying their staff, in some sense, a very low wage. And I think that if you looked at the best example of that, it's the person that drives their own car for Uber Mm to earn a wage versus that same person once upon a time applying to become a taxi driver, doing tests. Um, And Uber effectively has killed the cab industry in Australia to the point where now the cab industry is essentially a retail wage. You could work at Woolworths or drive a cab, um, whereas the cab industry used to be a way of getting really good self-employment and a return on an asset, which is a vehicle. I I must admit, I really like Uber. Yeah. And I've had, I'm one of those few people that's had not one bad Uber experience. And the cab industry had been treating us poorly, not individual drivers, but the industry as a whole. So I don't know if you've ever experienced this, Matt, but have you ever ordered a cab and had it not turn up? <laughs> we actually have, Fred. I didn't expect to be able to answer affirmative to that, but we have. We were on our, our sort of schoolies celebration and we, we were staying at a friend's beach house and we wanted to mm. be very responsible and get a cab down to the beach and back the next day. So we called up the day before, knowing it's super busy in the area. Yep. We asked them for like one of those big cabs that fits 10 people or yeah, whatever. Maxi cab. Yeah, yep. maxi stuff. We, we asked, hey, can you come tomorrow, one o'clock, uh, blah, 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 blah. So it was all out, got it organized. They said, yep. Um, on the day, nothing rocked up. We spent two hours working it out. Turns out they don't have any big taxis. And they ended up saying, oh yeah, we can charge you three times the amount to send three cabs down that way, or yep. we can't pick you up. And we were just baffled yep. by that, you know? Yeah. 
And so the disruption that your generation's experiencing is often in response to, I think, a degree of complacency in industry. But with that said, it's taking traditional paths of employment and changing them. I'm not a fan of the gig economy where you can't regulate what someone gets paid. Uh, and people are going to think I'm very left-leaning in saying that. And as I get older, I suspect I am being more left-leaning. But if you don't have common ground and a set of rules, you can exploit the most vulnerable, not give opportunity to them. Yeah. And we do know we work with the unemployed here all the time. Um, and people often say it's hard to get a job. But I also think for your generation, mobility is a bit of an issue too. Because once upon a time, like my dad, you could pack up your belongings and go halfway around the world and be insured of work. Now to relocate to another state, to go fruit picking, to do those things is a huge investment. Housing's not cheap. That's why lots of young people still live with mum and dad. Probably one of the trends I found fascinating, Matt, I'm a psychologist, as I've mentioned in every pod, is this idea that millennials look at mental health within the context of work. What do you make of that? Explain that to me, because I'm still not sure I've gotten my head around how that became a priority. Can I tell you, in my, my early career, the concept of mental health, despite having studied psychology, did not even factor yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that it's probably symptomatic of a broader emphasis on well-being across the board for younger people. Like, And this is probably a big part of that work-life balance and stability and stuff. That's all about feeling good about yourself and feeling like you're happy and thriving and able to make the most of situations and having a good well-being. And so I think mental health is, the, to me at least, mental health is the modern extension of that kind of emphasis on well-being. I think historically we've learnt to have an emphasis on physical well-being. That's something we've gotten quite good at as a society. You understand how to help people, how to go to the doctors, and most physical ailments can be managed if not treated um, to some extent. So I think the next step has been for younger people has been, well, crap, physically I'm fine, but I feel like garbage and I want to not get out of bed in the morning. So how do I do something about that? And, you know, that's the role of mental health professionals. They've taken the limelight a bit more recently. And I think work is a big place where this manifests. So I think if we're more interested in our well-being now, or at least maybe we're better able to articulate it. I, I don't want to say that older generations aren't interested in their well-being, but I think that there's something something to be said there. So I think that that's why we care a bit more or articulate better or pay more attention to the role of our mental well-being at work. It's because we're conscious of looking after ourselves beyond just our physical health. I guess I draw some parallels to things like um, our health and safety regulations and the importance that unions played in ensuring safe physical workplaces, particularly for labourers. Without that sort of stuff, there was horrible exploitation of physical um, health throughout the Industrial Revolution until we had these restrictions. Now I wonder if young people are uh, seeing a, a similar surge in attempts to protect their mental well-being, not just their physical well-being in the workspace. Look, I think it's a new a new part of, as an employer, I'll speak as an employer, it's a new aspect of employment that has changed in my professional life, which is two decades now. I think it links into the idea that in school about two decades ago or a decade ago, we started to think about pastoral care and yeah. by way of mental health. Um, and I think we started to attack cultural issues in schools like um, bullying, racism, other isms, all the other isms. 
in a really progressive way. Um, and some people would say it tipped too far the other way. Oh, I don't believe that. I think that those people that want to find out liars are, are just beating a, a dead horse. So I think we've become more civilised in this country. And the only parallels to that are also in places like the Netherlands because the Scandinavian countries have always believed in community care quite a social approach to things to say we want people happy and healthy. The evidence says when you're happy and healthy, you're more productive, therefore you're better members of the community and society and, and your work is better. I agree with you, work is a safe haven. Uh, we know statistically you spend about a third of your adult life at work, so you want it to be a safe haven. You want it to improve and enhance your mental well-being. And for your generation, I think it manifests as a way of saying, this is what I want and this is what I'll accept and while this is what I won't. I'm, I'm keen to know if it's the chicken or the egg, but things at work have changed as a result. Yeah, right. The way that we are managed and we manage has changed. Now, I don't believe that the balance is right. I think a lot of people, and, and I would look at the Victorian WorkSafe legislation that you just talked about, is too permissive of people saying, I didn't like the way my boss spoke to me, therefore I was bullied because I perceived it as being bullied. Mm -hmm. um, that's bullshit. Maybe your boss is an asshole. Maybe you shit at your job. Let's call a spade a spade. The chemistry is wrong. I think in other states, the balance is quite right. Um, where you can't pick on people at work or as the boss, if you have a bad day and you take it out on your staff, there's a consequence for that. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people want to make that about millennials, but it's not. It's about human decency. And I want to tell you an attitudinal shift. As a director here, as you know, Matt, I often say to people, we want you working your day and only your day, and then we want you to go home mm. because it's about working to live, not living to yeah, work. Yeah. The first job where I thought I really made it, you know, really made it. I remember my boss saying, if you want to do well in this career, you've got to be the first one in the office oh, and turn yeah. the lights on. And you've got to be the last one here and turn them off when you leave if you ever want to succeed. And to an extent, he was right in the conditions that were there then. He also said to me, I wouldn't be a decent people manager until I was 35. And like most young people, I said, what do you know? and took a management job at 25. I was probably lousy at it for about 10 years. So I put him down as being right then. He also told me, and for overseas listeners, I'll use the word that I'll explain in a minute. He refused to give me a corner desk when I was in my early 20s because he said, and I quote, if I give an Italian kid a corner, they'll put a fruit shop there. I said that he was a racist and that my father had a fruit shop <laughs> from the corner. Um, he actually called me a wog at the time, which if it happened in the work environment now, you'd rush to the Human Rights Commission. For those that are overseas listeners, a wog is a term in America. I think they call it a WAP uh, without papers or something. It's, a, it's an insult. It's a racially charged slur, and you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't say it. If you said it in the workplace today, it would cause issues. Yeah. And I like the fact that you can't insult people the way you used to. But the reality is we've come a long way because what people used to put up with wasn't productive. But I think they talk those changes up to your generation being less able to handle them. And I don't think that's the issue at all. I do think your generation benefits from the fact that you're not allowed to sexually harass staff yeah. and they just have to deal with it. You know, yeah. can't pinch the secretaries on the bum anymore, Matt. Yeah, yeah. What, a, what a disappointing outcome of political correctness. Oh, my God. 
Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure there's administrators all over the place just lamenting the good old days where the boss could sexually harass them. I don't think that's the case. So I do think there's a misconception about millennials in my experience as an employer and the benefit of working with you that they're somehow less resilient i think they get the opportunity to be more open and my question is if i was back in the day could do and say what i hear now in interviews would i have taken up that opportunity yes so in a way i'm a little bit jealous because i've never said to somebody they you know when the person said be here early and leave late i never said hey buddy I'd like to do more with my life than make you rich. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where's the two-way street here, pal, you know? I, I want to leave this podcast with a bit of an anecdote. I've had the opportunity not long ago to terminate somebody after a week and a half in the organization right. for really bad behavior. And that person would chalk up their really bad behavior as speaking their mind, meeting their need, interacting with their peers in a way that they think is fair and rational, really snotty-nosed, entitled, counterproductive, naive behaviour. And when I told someone I'd done this, they said, yeah, kids today. I said, this person was a baby boomer, buddy. Right, right. This person was in their last job, not their first job. And they acted like more of a petulant school person than any of the people that we hire in their early 20s. In fact, I have to say, Matt, the punchline is it was the the younger staff coming to me and saying, this person does not fit our culture that saw them exit. I think there is an opportunity to dispel a myth in my mind that millennials are somehow a different or more complex thing to manage. I think they're great. I think our business is built on the back of them. And I'm down with the children, thanks to you, Matt. I'm, I'm relevant. He's, he's rolling his eyes. For those that can't see him, he's now rolling his eyes. Okay. But he knows. He knows I, I have an affinity with the young person. You do very I do well the throw it. up the signs and the, I'm doing gang signs yeah, with my hands. Yeah, people, yeah, whatever, yeah. You're doing a great that. job of it. My God, I wish you would do that. But no. Um, I, I like the way you frame it, Fred. You know, people are always people. Some of them are excellent. Some of them aren't. And it doesn't really matter which generation you come from in that regard. But maybe younger people have more of an opportunity to be and say who they want to be and say what they want to say to their employer. I think that's really interesting, yeah. And I think a good business taps into that. And I think if there's someone listening that says, you know what, I've got great work for people that just want to come in when they finish school and do something meaningful and not over-invest, not go to university, but maybe learn while they earn, they should let us know. We'll put that out there. If you've got good jobs for people, there's a lot of jobs, I think, in the aged care sector, which will boom after the budget that's just been dropped. Yeah. The disability sector, that there are barriers to entry, but they're not huge. They're great, rewarding roles. I think there's work out there. And I think that the concerns that you have, Matt, mirrored what I had when I was the same age. Yeah. And I suspect the generation before me had the same concerns. I think that the barriers to entry to good jobs are harder there now, though, because there are, there are still people that are self-made entrepreneurs in my generation that didn't need to go to university, and there will be in the future too. But I think that the relationship between barriers to entry and human capital have started to really shift towards formal education 
and the system's a bit set up that way. And I think that is a shift. But I also think digital disruption means we don't know what the next round of jobs are going to look like. It's tough, isn't it? I guess that's it for this week, my friend. I know you've had a big week in the last couple of weeks with the real world, like university and stuff. And uh, you know what? This little thing that we started as a bit of a pet project for me and you seems to have legs, buddy. So, you know, six more episodes. Oprah Winfrey, that's my stretch goal. We get Oprah on the pod. The 12th episode, that's right, yeah. Thanks so much for joining. (laughs) Start the Oprah. You've got to believe to receive. It's like Santa Claus, Matt. Thanks for listening, guys. Over to you, my friend. Yeah, awesome. Thanks so much, guys. I've really enjoyed this sort of meeting in the middle about older people and millennials when it comes to work. This is very interesting. Cheers, Fred. Guys, thank you. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a Better Pod Group production with special thanks to our researcher, Nicola Binks, executive producer, Matt Blanche, the providers of our theme song with credits that are in our bio, and of course, you, the listener. It's important to remember that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Whilst there are therapeutic themes discussed, in no way is this podcast considered treatment, and in the event you're in a psychological emergency, please reach out in whatever way you can through 000 or Lifeline 13 11 14. It's important to remember that the discussion is for entertainment purposes and the opinions voiced by podcast hosts are theirs and theirs alone. Any reference to copyright or copywritten material is, of course, the copyright of the copyright owner and or relevant corporate entities. Thank you for listening to Bed Pod Group Productions and tune in to some of our other excellent pod productions on this network.